You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 130 of Girl Speak, Young Witches. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Special thanks to our sisterhood patrons, Angela Mills, Christina Sousa Martinez, Elizabeth Dillenberg, Erica Holt, Frances Helt, Hilary Rose, Mary Celeste Kearney, Michelle Taylor Bukok, and Sophie. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. Today, we will be exploring the experiences of quote unquote young witches, that is, girls who were accused of practicing witchcraft. We'll journey to the 17th century, visiting two infamous witch trials. Then, we'll explore a curious case that reveals how witchcraft is still very much present in modern times and causes innumerable harm to girls. But first, I'd like to give special thanks to Devin Allen, a volunteer with us and our mythology and witch history guru, whose undergraduate thesis on the Pendle Witch Trials and continued interest in witch history informed much of this podcast. Thanks, Devin. Now, let's hop in our time machine and get started. Our first stop is in the year 1612, in the English town of Pendle in Lancashire. Those of you Brits listening might already know the event we're talking about, the Pendle Witch Trials, and one particular girl known today as the Pendle Witch Child, whose testimony would lead to the execution of 10 people, including all of her own family. Pendle in 1612 was part of the wave of witch trials spreading throughout England. While witch trials had been happening for quite some time, the paranoia of living amongst evil was fed by the beliefs, political events, and publications during the first years of King James I's reign. King James was a Presbyterian who feared witches, having been the subject of a case in Scotland just 20 years earlier, known as the North Berwick Witches. Notably, among some of the 60 Berwick Witches on trial, there was an alleged conspiracy to assassinate James by raising a magical storm that attempted to sink his ship during his return from his honeymoon in 1590. Because of the accusations of treason, James became involved. The accusations reached the royal court in the winter of 1590-91, to contributing to a power struggle in which factions tried to persuade the tortured witch subjects to incriminate political rivals. Witnessing both the magical storm and the possibility of witchcraft and politics combining, James was genuinely terrified of witches. He also had strong beliefs in demonology, and was personally an avid witch hunter, having written his own guide to doing so, and encouraging it among those who wished to receive his favor and gain power. Pendle, a town filled with the poor and long believed to be associated with evil doings, was a hotbed of witch hunting. Enter in two girls. Alison and Jeanette Device. They lived in Lancashire with their mother, brother, and grandmother. The family was poor, probably near destitute, 
but lived in a small home in the area. The grandmother, Elizabeth Southerns, nicknamed and often referred to as Old Demdike, was known as a cunning woman, a term used in southern England, the Midlands, and Wales to refer to what we would call folk healers. A cunning woman practiced folk medicine and magic, notably divination, typically within a Christian context. She acted as a healer when a doctor was unaffordable, a midwife, and a charm maker and spellcaster whose works helped locate criminals or missing persons, identify stolen property, tell fortunes, or influence others. Her focus was typically on the practicalities of life, creating remedies to soothe the ailing or emotionally unwell. Old Demdike was likely appreciated by the poor folk of Lancashire, who could not afford doctors to heal their sick or had any other means of improving their own livelihoods. So she was called upon to give them a sense of control, to help in times of crisis, and generally act as a cross between doctor, therapist, and fortune teller, as we would call them. Old Demdike must have been decently liked, because her cunning skills were not what set off the 1612 witch hunt. Rather, the witch hunt was started in March of 1612, when young Allison, who as we stated was Old Demdike's granddaughter, met a peddler on the road. Being poor, she begged the peddler for pins, and was refused. Perhaps like so many times before, Allison cursed the peddler for not giving her anything, and began to walk away. Yet very quickly after, the peddler fell down on the road, convulsing into what we would now call a seizure. Passersby went to the rescue, carrying the peddler into town. Allison, distraught at her curse having worked, and likely knowing the potential consequences, is said to have run to the peddler's bedside and begged forgiveness. Now, in most towns, Allison's curse would have been shrugged away as a girl's fancies or even a tantrum. But Lancashire was under the rule of a local magistrate who was ambitious and sought to gain favor in James's land. When the peddler's son demanded explanation and pointed out Allison's cursing, the magistrate was quick to investigate. During questioning, Allison broke down completely. She confessed to having a familiar, which was her grandmother's, and that her entire family were witches. Later on, Allison realized she had implicated her family and tried to take some focus off of them by accusing the neighboring Whittle family, which included an elderly woman nicknamed Old Chaddix. However, this was only enough to start questions. The hard evidence was given on Good Friday, when Allison and Jeanette's mother hosted a party instead of going to church. In the 17th century, this wasn't just a sin. It was dangerous. Later hearing of the party, the local magistrate saw his opportunity. He arrested all who attended and claimed that the party was a witch's coven meeting. Because who else would skip church? As word spread throughout the community, fingers were pointed in all directions. It was neighbor against neighbor as old feuds, small fights, and general suspicions blew into a full-blown witch hunt and expanded the circle of accused witches. Through all this, Allison's little sister, nine-year-old Jeanette, had been distinctly quiet. Yet, for reasons unknown, the magistrate called Jeanette as the key witness at her own mother's trial. This was a big moment in witch trial history, not just in Britain, but all over Europe and even reaching to America. Until this act, children could not be called as witnesses in court. 
But with Jeanette's summons, children are now allowed to be called as witnesses in court, a precedent that has lasted to modern times. Perhaps Jeanette was abused or felt angry at her mother. Perhaps she was persuaded by the magistrate. We'll never know exactly why, but at the trial, Jeanette was brought in. The moment was documented by the clerk of the court, Thomas Potts, who later compiled his notes into a published book. In it, Potts states that when Jeanette's mother was brought to the stand, she screamed out at seeing Jeanette enter the court. The mother was removed from court, and Jeanette then climbed on a table and calmly denounced her mother as a witch. In the two-day trial, Jeanette became the star, and her testimony sealed the fate of her family and neighbors, nearly all of whom were found guilty of causing death or harm by witchcraft. This was because in King James's book on demonology, he had stated that the testimony of a child, even a very young child, should be considered hard evidence of witchcraft. The next day, Jeanette's family, her mother, brother, sister Allison, and grandmother Old Demdike, as well as the old Chaddocks and her family and several neighbors, were hanged at Gallows Hill. Jeanette was now an orphan. The Pendle case became famous, and Potts's book elevated Jeanette to a case study for witchcraft prosecutions across Britain and even in the Americas. It led to many witch hunters seeking the testimony of very young children, including those at the infamous Salem witch trials, where most of the evidence was given by children. Ultimately, Jeanette fell victim to her own schemes. At the age of 29, Jeanette was accused of witchcraft, along with 16 others, by a 10-year-old boy. She was found guilty, but the case was referred to the Privy Council at the judge's discretion. In those 20 years, Jeanette had become a woman. Things in Britain had begun changing. Britain was now ruled by Charles I, who was more thorough about investigations. His reforms led to searches for more thorough evidence, especially when cases were appealed to the Privy Council. For Jeanette, this was crucial. Her case's referral to the Privy Council led to a more thorough search. Looking for crucial evidence such as witches' marks, the Council found none. So they turned to, count to questioning the ten-year-old boy, who admitted his accusations were false and based on stories he had been told about the Pendle Witch Trial that had made Jeanette a star. Despite evidence of her innocence, Jeanette was kept in prison, since she was unable to pay her prison fees. Jeanette disappeared from the historical record in 1636, just three years after her trial, most likely having died in prison. While Jeanette was growing up an orphan, another witch hunt was taking place in Germany, on a massive scale. We'll get to that in a moment. Now back to our story. From 1626 to 1631, Germany witnessed some of the biggest mass trials and mass executions for witchcraft in its entire history. One of these focused on the city of Wurzburg, where nearly 900 people were executed on suspicion of witchcraft. The victims were from all classes of German society, including nobles, councilmen, and mayors. Germany's witch trials were caused by similar factors to those in Pendle. First, Protestantism, a centuries-long mainstay of German culture, was challenged during the Thirty Years' War. As the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II sought to enforce religious uniformity, meaning Catholicism, throughout his domains, 
Protestants in northern Germany formed the Protestant Union to defend their faith. Fairly quickly, northern Germany was challenged by the southern and Catholic Germany. They lost in 1621, but the fight was continued by other Protestant countries who entered the war to defend their German brethren. Soon, the war became more about politics than religion, with Protestant Sweden, backed by Catholic France, more focused on keeping Germany from the political control of the Habsburg rulers of the Holy Roman Empire in Spain. Basically, what started as a religious war quickly became about who controlled Germany and held the power there. Beyond the struggle, the war was devastating to Germany. Nearly 20% of the population was killed during the war. That's over 8 million people. And entire regions were devastated to the point of starvation and disease. In fact, the war ranks among the worst famines and plagues in history, perhaps the worst in modern European history. Though exact evidence is lacking, historians think population losses could have been as much as 50 to 60% in some regions, with nearly 2,000 castles, 18,000 villages, and 1,500 towns in Germany destroyed. Adding to this, invading Catholics had more fervent beliefs in witchcraft, including adhering to texts such as the Malleus Maleficarum, published nearly 150 years prior. Inquisitions became common, producing mass hysteria that spread quickly throughout Germany. The war, crop failures, famines, and disease all caused the Germans to blame witches for their many problems, or perhaps to distract invading Catholic authorities from looking at anyone else. Those suspected of being witches were accused of humming songs with the devil, murder, Satanism, or even simply being unable to state why they were crossing town. While some trials had been held in the decades prior, the late 1620s was the zenith of witch hunting in Germany, beginning in the Bishopric of Würzburg. Writing in August 1629, the Chancellor of the Prince Bishop of Würzburg stated, Ah, the woe and the misery of it. There are still four hundred in the city, high and low, of every rank and sex, nay, even clerics, so strongly accused that they may be arrested at any hour. In a word, a third part of the city is surely involved. A week ago, a maiden of nineteen was executed, of whom it is everywhere said that she was the fairest in the whole city and was held by everybody a girl of singular modesty and purity. To conclude this wretched matter, there are children of three and four years, to the number of three hundred, who are said to have had intercourse with the devil. I have seen put to death children of seven, promising students of ten, twelve, fourteen, and fifteen. According to historical records, among the executed in Würzburg were many girls, including the apothecary's daughter, 19-year-old Goebel Babylon, who was said to be the prettiest girl in town, the daughter of Councillor Stolzenberg, a little maiden nine years of age, a maiden less than nine, and her sister, and a 15-year-old girl. We can glean some information about these girls from cases of named girls, such as seven-year-old Brigitte Horner of nearby Rothenburg, whose circumstances might match some of the other girls. In 1639, claims were made that Brigitte was a witch, that she attended Sabbaths by flying on a fire iron and had promised herself to the devil. Little Brigitte responded that she had no choice in becoming a witch. She had been baptized by the pastor of her birthplace, Spielbach, in the name of Satan, not God. 
Brigitta went on to identify members of her coven, most of whom were adults, which led to many arrests and Brigitta becoming nicknamed the Little Witch Girl. Historian Alison Rowlands has worked on analyzing the case, suggesting that Brigitta's actions were likely because she wanted attention. Brigitta was an orphan whose remaining relatives did not take responsibility for her and left her to wander the city streets. Her stories gave her power, a name, and an identity in a world that had forgotten her. Treated kindly, Brigitta's stories were eventually deemed not plausible. She was released into the care of the local hospital for orphans and the elderly. Unlike so many others, Brigitta was ignored and lived. She remained in the hospital for three months and was then released to the care of her uncle. She was passed between relatives for some time, beaten, and eventually forced out of the city. She was discovered dead in a barn near the city in October 1640 at the age of eight. From Brigitta's story, we can glean that perhaps the witch girls of Wurzburg were in similar circumstances. Some might have been destitute orphans, hoping that accusing witches would change their circumstances. Others might have been orphans singled out as witches because their extended kin did not want them, or because they slighted others, as little Alice and Devisa had done. Yet the accusers and murdered girls were not the only victims of witch trials during this time. Girls who lived through the trials were also victims, losing family members and security. One such girl was the daughter of Johann Junius, the mayor of Bamberg, who died during Bamberg's witch trials in 1628. Johann's wife had been previously executed for witchcraft, and Johann himself was accused and tried in 1628. He denied the accusations even after a full week of torture, but confessed on July 5th and was burned to death one month later. Before his death, Johann wrote a letter to his daughter, Veronica, which was smuggled out of jail and delivered to her. In the letter, Johann defend defended his innocence, stating, Innocence I have come into prison, innocent have I been tortured, innocent must I die. For whoever comes into the witch prison must become a witch, or be tortured until he invents something out of his head and, God pity him, bethinks him of something. I must say that I am a witch, though I am not must now renounce God, though I have never done it before. Now, dear child, here you have all my confession, for which I must die. And they are sheer lies and made-up things, so help me God. For all this I was forced to say through fear of the torture, which was threatened beyond what I had already endured. For they never leave off with the torture till one confesses something. Dear child, keep this letter secret so that people do not find it, else I shall be tortured. He ended the letter stating, Good night, for your father Johann Julius will see you no more. The letter is all we know of Veronica, girl left orphaned by the Bamberg witch trials. Ultimately, the German witch trials ended, at least in some parts, in 1631, when King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden invaded. Winning the war trumped witchcraft. Finally, we travel forwards in time. Far forward to 2013, when UNICEF issued a report about a child witch in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Although Congolese law outlaws accusations of witchcraft, children are often accused and suffer the consequences. The 2013 report discussed the case of a 16-year-old girl who lived for a year as an accused witch before being rescued by a local NGO and sharing her story. 
In 2012, her father died and she left to live with her uncle. One morning, a cousin suffered an epileptic seizure, but the doctors could find no immediate cause for it. Instead, the uncle's wife became convinced that the 16-year-old was responsible for inflicting the illness on the boy, since she'd never seen anything like that before. Upon hearing the accusations, her uncle refused to continue paying her school fees and eventually threw her out of the house. She was forced to live on the streets, avoiding others for fear of greater accusations. She was later found by UNICEF partner, the NGO Children's Voice, which offered her shelter at a center for vulnerable children. Such modern-day witchcraft accusations are more common than you think. They often occur during times of hardship, when people's beliefs in witchcraft and other supernatural forces tend to be stronger. Anthropologists have also identified a combination of crises that make it more likely for children to be accused of witchcraft, including economic hardship, conflict, urbanization, displacement, and family breakdown, all of which undermine feelings of security and unity and push people into a reliance on spiritual beliefs. It is estimated that thousands of children in the Democratic Republic of Congo are living as accused witches, often as orphans or on the streets. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to be turn into our next podcast in November as we discuss Chinese mythology. Finally, please help to support future production of Girlspeak by visiting us at www.girlmuseum.org and clicking donate. Thank you and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.